Good morning and welcome back. We're going to be learning this morning. First of all, I want to thank the sponsors. Um, we're, uh, we're, uh, we're, um, Mary and Susan Cohen are, who are, who are sponsoring the Nishmas Shendel Bas Yeshayahu Tzvi. That's Marie's Co Marie Cohen's mother, um, which is this evening and tomorrow. It should be the Eloi Nishmasa. Um, I mean, she should be a Melissa Yisharaf in time Ishbacha always. I want to also thank um, the Seagulls for sponsoring, Lilo Nishmas Mordechai Ben Yosef Meir Halevi. That's Barbara's grand... Yosef Meir Halevi. That's, uh, that, that, that's Barbara's grandfather, whose Yosef was last Thursday. It should be Lilo Nishmas. And I just discovered that both sides of the Mishbacha have a Levium. Which is a, a big schus on, on, on both sides of Mitzvah Hashem. Again, he should be a Melis Yosha for Mishpacha always. Um, I also want to learn this morning for the Rafua Korova of Leah Bas Brina. God willing, our learning should be for a full Rafua for her and for her Mishpacha's uh, Yeshua. And also, uh, also this is Zisel Bas, Bas Yaakov. Oh, so this is, this is, uh, this is uh, Paula. Um, McAlphman's mother, who's Yoichloshim, we just passed this last week. Okay, folks, so this is a, this is a share. Full disclosure, I'm very excited to, to, be, to be learning with you this morning. This is, um, this is a very fascinating topic. And um, um, just to get it, to get it going, this, is a, this topic we, we will see Hashem, as we learn together. We're going to learn through very different ways of thinking. So we're going to learn through some parashanot. We're going to learn through some drash. We're going to learn from historical politics and some Kabbalah as well. So really, this, this goes across the board. So there's definitely something for everybody in terms of what, what it reaches and what it resonates with. But let's, let's start at the very beginning. We are about to celebrate a holiday called Purim. And Purim is one of the strangest um, uh, names for a holiday. Well, the Megillah tells us why. And in fact, if we ask any of our... Uh, our, our, our children, our grandchildren, why it is that we celebrate Purim, they all tell us, well, it's because of the lottery, right? The, that, poor, that, that the poor was the, this lottery. That's exactly what the Megillah says. The Megillah says in Perek Tes, Pasuk, um, that's where, where it is. This is the part of the Megillah that everybody is on cruise control for because we finished the story, now it's just sort of wrapping it all up. But the Megillah actually tells us how to celebrate it. Here's what it says. When Esther came in front of the king, she requested to turn around everything he'd requested on his head. And they, uh, and they hanged Haman and his children on the gallows. Al-Kain, therefore, they called these days Purim. So the Megillah itself is actually regulating how it is to be called. Al Shem Hapur, because of the lottery. Al Kain call Al Kol Divrei Haigeres Hazos. Therefore, this whole letter, Umara U Al Kacha Umagielahem, and they saw what they saw through this and what arrived to them in the end. So this is what the, the Megillah tells us about its own name, and it could not be more strange. It could not be more unusual. Because let's think about this for a moment. We're going to introduce it perhaps with the way that Rav Foreman introduces the question, which is a very clever way of thinking about this. Is let's imagine that you are on the naming committee of, uh, of Purim. So you are part of the council that Esther gathers together, the leadership in Shushan and the diaspora, and she says to you, so what would you name the salvation? I mean, this is clearly God, a godsend. And um, what are you going to say? So you think to yourselves, well, maybe, may, maybe something to do with, you know, 
the, you know, the, the three magical days, you know, the fasting. You know, you think may, maybe, you know, the day of prayer or maybe, you know, the queen in hiding. You have so many names as to what the possibilities is what this festival could be called. What do they call it? They call it the tool that the enemy used to try to eradicate them. Meaning, th think about that. So it's so unusual. It's like saying, I imagine in the in 1948 world, the War of Independence, they say that they're going to name it not Yom Ha'atzma'ut, they're going to name it Tokarev Day. Because that was the rifle used by the Arabs, the Arab legion, that, that was used to potentially kill and wipe the Jews off the map. So you say to yourself, that's, you know, that first of all, it's inconsequential. Meaning it's, a, it's such a detail in the story, but also it's, it's a negative detail in the story. You want to push it even further. It's not just a negative or inconsequential detail. It's the, a theologically troubling detail in the story. When Haman was using the Goral, when he was using the lottery, if we just to appreciate this for a moment, what was he really doing? Well, I mean, like, he could have just said, he could have just said, you know, my birthday is on the 20th of February, and I want to always have, a, uh, you know, my birthday. Even better, it's Zeresh's birthday on the 13th of April, right? And as a present for her, I'm going to now, I'm going to eradicate the Jews, and we'll put up a special plaque on the wall um, to remind her of her birthday presents. It's hard to replicate that one again, you know? But nonetheless, that, that's, why was he using the lottery? Why, why was he using the lottery? He's using the, the Jewish themed Goral. Same thing on Yom Kippur, you do a Goral between the two. So we do say Goral in, Ju in Judaism. So you're saying he's doing a Jewish esque thing. I think it's even worse than that. Barbara? Oh, so if you think about this, think what he's actually saying to them. He's saying like this. You think you're so special, you, you Jews. You think you've got a God. You think you've got, you know, providence. You think your God's looking out for you. Well, let me show you something. I'm going to kill you in a way wherever I throw the dice, that's what's going to happen. Meaning that you have no control. Let your God come and save you now. You, meaning to say he was using their tool, right, going into the... But he was, he was using it against them. Now, here you can imagine that the Jews, and they're saying, it wasn't as if Haman just decreed to destroy them. He was actually saying to them, there is no savior. I can do it whenever I want. You will die. There's no one who's going to come to you to your back. And so we say, well, let's name it after the tool of, that denies God's existence. And it's a very, very strange way of looking at things. And I want to get a little, a little further into you. Problem, right? Problem. Problem. No, 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 not, not, not such a simple uh, um, question to, to try to unpack. And the Megillah itself calls it this. It's not like Chazal later on are saying this is what we should call the day. The Megillah itself, Esther herself is calling it this way. So obviously she thinks this is, this is pretty significant. So let's, let's, try to, let's try to appreciate this from a number of different angles. Okay, so some of these, are, they're going to be very different angles um, as to uh, understanding this. And uh, let's start at the very beginning. The first, the first idea is, um, is, uh, is an idea which is expressed in, uh, in the Be'er Yosef. The Be'er Yosef is a sefer which has re recently been republished. Um, Rav Yosef Tzitzi uh, Salant, um, who actually came to Yerushalayim at the end of his days and um, was, uh, was advised to publish his drushes. They are the most unusual and original ideas. So he points out that what language is Purim in? It's Persian, right, it's Persian. It's not, it's Farsi, right? It's not, it's not actually Hebrew. So right, the, the, the word for Purim in Hebrew would be Goral or Goralot, right? So it's interesting. So he points out that actually the word Pur, um, Pur has another meaning in Persian. This is something we've never, ever, never thought about beforehand. Purim has another meaning. Here, take a look what he says. Let's look in the, on the page two, the top of the page two. This is the, the Be'er Yosef, one small section of it. He says the following. 
ויתוכן עוד לבאר. דלקחו לימים האלה פורים על שם הפור, שהוא בלשון פרסי, it's in the Persian, Persian language. ולא קראום גורלוס על שם העברי, it was not called in its Jewish name, משום דיש בזה גם להזכיר את הנס שהמן נפל על המיטה אשר אסתר עליה, because it refers to the miracle of, of, of המן falling onto the bed of um, Esther, that last critical moment when Achashverosh took, took his drunken walk in the garden, in the Ginas Abizan. That's in uh, Perek Zayin. It was called the days of Puraya. What is Puraya? We call it the, the days of Puraya. The idea is that the Purim is called Puraya. What does that mean? Uveloshon Aramis, Puraya Himita. In Aramaic, so again, Persian means lottery. In Aramaic, it means bed. How do we know? That's just an example that the Gemara says. The Gemara says this in Bab Metziah. Gemara shakas the Gemara in Bab Metziah. Vahanitzlas mili avidi rabbonim demeshanim b'milahu. There's three things that you're allowed to change the truth ever so slightly for. There's three things. The first one is Mesechta. So somebody says to you, so how much have you learned? So you say, you know, I learned a few blood here and there. <laughs> You're allowed to underestimate what you, what, you, what you learned for the sake of humility, right? So even though it's not really the exact truth, you're allowed to underestimate. But Puraya, when people ask you things about the bed, which means to say things regarding Tznios of one's house, one doesn't tell the truth, right? One doesn't talk, when it comes to things which are intimate um, matters in, the, in one's house, one's allowed to change the truth a little bit for that because that's Tznios. What's the word that Gemara uses to describe bed is Puraya, which means, isn't this unbelievable? What Esther is doing is she's slipping in there a word which is a double translation. She's slipping in a word which is really sounds like lottery, but it actually is the bed, which means to say, what's she drawing attention to? She's saying, think about every detail of this nace. Just imagine that Haman did not fall on the bed at that moment. And Hachashverosh came back and said, you know what, Esther, you know, I really love you and everything. But I already sent out the ring. Let's just, let's just leave this one. You know what? I'll save you. You'll be my queen. Everything will be fine. Bring a few of your family members into the palace and, and it'll, it'll be all right. So what Esther was saying is every detail, every part of the sequence that needed to fall into place in order for this to occur was necessary. Don't even, don't underestimate the power of that last moment on the bed. That's what she was saying. I mean, so it's a reframing of the whole experience. Unbelievable. This is, this, I, I assume that nobody in the room has, has, has heard of this before, including myself. This is an unbelievable explanation, just in terms of what the, 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 the wisdom of Esther's insight into putting this word as the, as the festival. So the next time anybody asks you, what does Purim mean? Yeah. You can say, it means bed. Right, that's, the, that's, it, it's, that's, that's what we're referring to, is the last critical moment of the, of the miracle necessary to happen. That's that. how many drinks have you Right, so there we go. So, there we go, man. <laughs> Alpi Drash, very good. <laughs> the Ramam did not read this way. Um, okay, good. This is, this is idea number one. So again, a, a retranslation of the notion of what the word Purim actually means. We're going to see another retranslation later on because it, it moves beyond our regular, our regular um, assumptions. Let's move into, the, into a, a secondary answer, which is Rav Chaim David, Yosef David Azulai. The Chida was unbelievably prolific. He has halachic works, he has responsa, and he has a pirush on Tanakh, which I'm getting so much enjoyment from recently. And that's a, the name of it is Chomas Anach, which is his pirush on Tanakh. 
prolific author. Um, and uh, the, the, I mean, the Chida is unbelievable in every, on, in, in every realm. So here's what he says on the Megillah. This is a, a less tapped into um, Pirush um, that, 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 than we usually heard of. And he says a very interesting thing. And that is, is that if you were to translate the word lottery, the word lottery would, would give you the word, into, in Hebrew it would be goral, in, in Persian it would be pur. But we don't call it pur. <laughs> it's not pur, right? It's purim. Hey, wait a second. Where did that come from? It's al shem hapur, right? There was a lottery, so call it pur. Right, it'd be much simpler, one syllable, right? It's much easier to get onto the gr greetings card. So what happened to the Purim? So here's what he says. He says, Efshar, in the bottom of, um, of page two, Kamosha Kosov, actually, let's start in the second line, by the period. He says, Gam Kosov Harav Maharizal. I'm not sure who the Mahari, who he is quoting is. He says, Dachashver Sovar di Kosev Labodom, Haino Labe Dasom, Vavan Kivain Lakram Mina Olam. He says that it is true that Haman wanted to eradicate the Jews on a, uh, as a race. But Achashverosh is interested in eradicating them as a religion, as a culture. That's why he is so astounded who's trying to wipe them out. Meaning, why is that Esther has to go so far to beg Achashverosh? Because Achashverosh is on the same page. He was just more interested in the cultural eradication, whereas Haman was interested in the actual genocide. So it means in the, in the physical genocide of this, of this nation. That's why it took so much for Esther to, to stop to stop Achashverosh, because it wasn't just stopping poor Haman, it was stopping Achashverosh as well. Skipping down three lines on the top of page three, with, uh, uh, towards the end of the line it says, Tarti mashma. Why is it Purim uh, in plural? Lots. Because al shame hapur ki bozea pur hayoshteik zeros da chashverosh ipilu vikiven avatel adas vavon ahaman arak kiven harog harog. So chashverosh wanted to wipe them out um, spiritually or culturally, and Haman wanted to kill them. Vehem shteik zeros shteik gorlos bevas achas v'lochen nikra Purim tre mashma. That's why it's called the lotteries. Because don't forget the other one. Now think about this for a second. That means to say that the miracle was much greater than we first anticipated. Because if it's just Haman, okay, we can deal with these crazies, right? We can, we can somehow, she managed to intercede with this, this you know, rabid, you know, uh, um, anti-Semite. Okay, but when you're dealing with the king who's on the same page, very hard to stop that train. So therefore, in a certain sense, implicitly she's saying, al Shemapur Purim. There's two lots. We have to stop him as well. Now, I want to just, so this, this is just an interesting insight just in terms of the language of it. But there's, there's much more to this because this sounds a little strange. You know, like, where did you get this from that Achashverosh really was on the same page? You know, that sounds a little bit, you know, like a little bit more of a subtext than we were usually expecting. So let's just think about this politically for just a moment. This is the most unbelievable insight. The most unbelievable insight into reading the, the, the Megillah. I believe that, it, that, that once hearing this, we will never ever read the Megillah the same way again. So this actually, I didn't have a chance to put into the notes because I found this afterwards. But um, this is what the Gomorrah says. This is such, such an unbelievable statement. The Bar Yosef, once again, in, in, in an earlier explanation, says the following. And I'm going to quote the Gomorrah in Megillah on Zion Amud Aleph. At all said and done, the story is finished, right? The Jews are saved, everything's fine. What happens next? 
So the Gemara tells us in Adav Zaynamun Aleph, Amar Av Shmuel Bar Yehuda, this is not in the notes, I apologize. Sholcha lohem Esther lechachamim kavuni kivuni ledarais. Esther wanted to be included in the canon of Tanakh. Not a simple thing, by the way. There are many books that were, or are called, what's called apocrypha, which means to say the books which were not included in Tanakh. Writings, historical accounts, which were written around the time of Tanakh and weren't included in the canon. Canon, which is spelt, you know, where they say the difference between canon with two N's and one N. It's actually three or two, because there's an N at the ends, right? Just, just every, so we're not talking about the canon which shoots, the canon which is, is really the, the corpus of material. There's 24 books in Tanakh. So she made a, an official request to be included in Tanakh, and she was accepted, right? I mean, to say, just to appreciate this, later on, a few centuries <coughs> later on, when there was writings about, about Hanukkah, that was not included in the canon. Tanakh had been closed already, right? That was too late. Right, so, the, so Esther said, Kavuni Ladaros, include me for generations. Shalgullah, <clears throat> the response was to her, and I, we can assume this is Anshek Nesagdala because she was living at the same time as Anshek Nesagdala. Shalgullah, they responded to her, Kina at Moareres Olenu Levena Umas. It's not a good idea to stir the pot right now, Esther. If you put in your story, it's going to create a lot of trouble politically for us. So Shochulohem Kvar Kos Kosuva Ani Es Al Divrayamim Shah Lemalche Umadai Oparas. She says, "Don't worry, I've written the version of the story which is already included in the history and the annals of Persia." That's interesting. It means to say, I've already um, sanitized the history, which is uh, all right to be included in their version of history, and therefore it's fine. Now think about that for a moment. Think about what that means. Esther is written and writing in a self-censored way. Why? Because she cannot possibly say anything which is negative about the Persian government because they're publishing her works and she is the queen of Persia. Right? Think about that for a moment. That means to say that if we read the Megillah, we have to think so carefully about what Esther really means in contrast to what she's actually saying. Think about that for a moment. Now, let, let, now this explains something which is very important, something critical. is If you read the Megillah of the Gemara in Megillah, which is Chazal's understanding of the Megillah, of Megillah's Esther, they will tell us numerous times where it seems like Achashverosh, where it seems like Haman are actually worse than they even are. And you say to yourself, Chazal, calm down. Let's, you know, like, let's, well, why, why are you now, you know, making it so bad for these people? An example, the Gemara says, as an example, about Achashverosh, it says, Achiv Shalrosh, his name was actually an acronym, he was, the, he was the brother of the head. Who was the head? The Gemara, the, the Mepharshim explained, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was, of course, that Babylonian general, Nabuchaduri Utsur, who destroyed the, the, the Middle East, including Israel, and, um, and exiled our land. So Achashverosh is Achiv Shalrosh. He was the brother. He was just on the same page as Nebuchadnezzar, right? Meaning to say, even though he's Persian, right? Persians came after the Babylonians. Nonetheless, that's how bad he was. Other examples, the Gemara says. The Gemara says that, um, the Gemara says about Achashverosh, uh, that He was, from beginning to end, he was rotten through the core. Not a good moment in his life. You think to yourself, like, why is Chazal being so, you know, so black and white about it? You know, the way we read the Megillah, it sounds like Achashverosh uh, is never his poor guy who just can't stop drinking, and whoever is speaking to him at the right moment during his drinking party gets his ring, right? That's what it sounds like, right? He is, he is not very much a decisive individual. He's more or less, you know, he goes with the flow. Um, he gets angry at times, and he, go, he gets upset, but it's all in a, in a drunken stupor, it seems like. So, so the Gemara is telling us, no. The Gemara is telling us the tradition of what really actually happened, which Esther couldn't actually write. 
she couldn't write it because it was under the censor of, of, of the times. Which is, if you think about this, uh, just a classic example. What the Gemara says is the following. When Haman first came to Achashverosh and presented the idea of eradicating the Jews, Achashverosh was no fool. Achashverosh said the following words. This is the Gemara records in Megillah. He said, look, if you, if you go into the, the annals of history, people have had bad bad luck trying to get rid of this nation, right? Meaning to say, you don't need to read too much into Egyptology. You don't need to read too much into Babylonian scriptures to understand that this is not a good idea messing with this nation. So why am I going to put my hat in this ring for, for you, O Haman? So he summoned into the court all his advisors, and Haman made his presentation. And the Gemara says at the end of the presentation, Haman was so convincing, he was such an orator, he was so vociferous about his, um, his, his point of view that everybody, including the king, was on the same page. And that's, uh, and, and, and that's, what, that's what happened. That's what Haman actually gave over, Ahasuerus uh, gave over his ring to Haman, which means to say, then we move from that narrative into the Megillah's narrative. What is, what is Haman saying? Right, and, they, and, Haman, and Haman makes this whole, this whole pretext. Does Ahasuerus, according to the Megillah, actually know who they are in the Megillah? Not really. He's like, you know, Haman... You know, you go, you, you do your thing, and you know, it's all right, just let me to, leave me to, to governing my 127 states. And later on, when, when, when Esther gets up at the second party, and she says, there's a person, he's like, who could possibly be wiping out your nation? Here are the minutes of the meeting in which you uh, had a, a, a specific discussion about the Jewish problem, and you came out with the final solution, agreeing to your rabid uh, council. That means to say, you knew exactly what was going on. But can the Megillah say that? No. The Megillah, of course, can't say that. Which means to say that uh, Esther reframes the story in a way which was more favorable to Ahasuerus as being the bystander rather than the perpetrator of the problem. Now, that comes back to what we've just seen in both of these ideas beforehand, both in the Chidzah and also in the, the original Pshad of the Ber Yosef, which means to say, Esther is not at liberty to say what really happened. So what does she do, says the Ber Yosef? She gives the name in Persian. She gives the name in Persian for us to understand that really there's more to the story than meets the eye. You need to peer through the latticework to see what's really going on. She gives a name which is, which is also in Armenian, relates to the miracle of Ahasuerus now being teed off by Haman's actions when he leaves the room. Where the, the notion is Purim, where there's two lots. Why? Because it wasn't just Haman, it was also him. But it has to be so subtle that those people reading it in Persia, those people putting it into the... In the, in the annals of Persian and Median history are not going to notice the, 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 the subtext of the story. You have a remarkable understanding of, the, of, of what it is. And this is, this is the sensitivities, which is why, just, just as an example, in history, there is a pirush called the Manos Alevi, which is Rosh Shlomo Alkabetz's explanation of the Megillah, and he rails against people who try to explain the Megillah just on a level of chat. He says you cannot possibly ignore the Megillah Gomorrah of the Megillah, the Talmud, Bavli and the Talmud Yerushalmi in learning the Megillah. You can't ignore that and explain it on its own basis because that's only half the story. Think about that for a moment, right? We're used to thinking, well, there's Drash, and we can say Pshat as well. The Manoah Salevi says, no, there is no way to read it independently because the Megillah is simply a censored version of the real story.
That's, and, that, and that's how we need to um, think about it in, in greater context. A remarkable, remarkable understanding brings together these three ideas of Purim. First of all, the Persian, the, the, the idea that, it's, that it means um, the bed. Number two is the idea of the, the plural of lots. Number three is that it's in Persian for the people to really realize there's much more going on. Yes. <coughs> Good, okay, good. And that's exactly a, a perfect example. That might be another way why it is that she is pushing down the name of God because she's, her, her, the audience who has to be able to read this has to be an audience who's saying, well, this is simply a historical account of what occurred, right? And therefore, that's why there's this, there's this, there's this, again, one, another, and that's why Chazal is saying to us, every time it says Melech, in such, in Melech Stam, it refers to Hashem because they know the coding, right? So therefore, we have an uh, ability to be able to peer through. Yes, Bob. That's, a, that's also what the Gemara is saying. Is the Gemara is saying is that which is why we don't say halal, is because at the end of the day, what they're saying is, is that as miraculous as it was, we still, but that's a little different. That's, that, I mean, that's about the bigger picture. This is about the actual Megillah itself. Yeah. She tells us ourselves, we're not familiar in the Megillah because she says, She already wrote a different one. This is telling you that this one is the same. Uh, censored and written for the masses of the Correct. It'll be, a different version of this whole thing. Which is interesting. If that's the case, so, so as you said, so Eliezer, it's interesting to, to say that we, today we don't have the original version, which shows you something very important about Apocrypha, is that, is that if you want something to be extant for all of history, it needs to be included in religious tradition. So even though the true story was, and we don't have that version, but we have the putting together the Chazal <coughs> and the Megillah is where we get it. Just very fascinating. Remarkable way of reading this. I think, I think we'll all agree this is just such a different way of looking at the Megillah than, than ever looked at beforehand. Two more ideas. Radically different to anything we've done up till now. Okay, so just appreciate this. So, um, well, actually, think Tziona, Tziona, actually, um, um, I, I spoke at an NCSY event a, 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 a couple of weeks ago, and she ran the event, so, she, so NCSY, she facilitated getting this book, which is a, fresh off the press this year, so in her schuss, I had the opportunity of reading this. This is called the Masara Sarav Megillus Esther, which is, um, <coughs> which is actually sort of the thoughts put up, put up by the Corin and the OU Press of Rav Soloveitchik on Megillah. And so what does he say about this? So he points out a, a point that somebody else mentioned, oh, Saul mentioned just a few moments ago, and that is, um, and that, is, is that Purim actually has a, a, another meaning altogether. All and what the, the, what the Mufarshei HaKabbalah actually say about this is, is that if you read it carefully, it's actually the words of another festival. Right? It's Yom Kippurim is, it is literally ke, like, and then it's the actual same words of Purim, <clears throat> which means that the Megillah is somehow, apparently Purim, is the same as, or rather the other way around. Yom Kippur is like Purim, which is strange because Yom Kippur, of course, came way before, it's in the Torah already, way before Purim. Now you think to yourselves, that sounds very much like poetic license, doesn't it? I mean, like, if you were to, to be asked what day would go naturally with Yom Kippur, Purim would certainly not be on the top three of your list, right? Now, forget just about the amount of eating that we're supposed to be doing. <coughs> <laughs> and the amount of drinking that we're supposed to be doing, which are clearly the two primary issues on, on Yom Kippur. But nonetheless, just even the tone of the day is completely different, right? The tone of the day of Yom Kippur is one of contrition, a day of self-analysis, of introspection. Purim is, is you know, you know external, external, it's joy, it's energy moving outwards rather than energy moving inwards. There couldn't be anything more different. So when we hear that, we all say to ourselves, yes, yeah, we know very much a poetic description. It happens to be that, you know, the Aramaic, the, the Persian word happens to sound a little bit like Yom Kippur, and that's very nice. Cesar Soloveitchik, in his, in, his, um, 
in his um, in his Megillah, his Pirush on the Megillah, the following the following insight. It's such a remarkable idea. Purim and Yom Kippur on page three are alike in that they both involve the casting of lots. So wait a second. So let's let's not let's not um, let's not deny this too fast. There's both a set of lots on Purim and Yom Kippur, a characteristic of games of chance. The Purim Goral determined the date chosen by Haman for the destruction of the Jews. Indeed, the very name Purim means lots. What is so significant about the method that Hashem employed to, um, um, uh, uh, that, uh, that Haman employed to choose a date? Why should the holiday itself be so named? So here's how he understands it. The Megillah is a book of contradictions. It's filled with events that are unreasonable, even absurd, coincidental, and pure chance. At one moment, the Jews live in security in Persia. The next, they face destruction. Mordechai is threatened with execution. Then suddenly, he is prime minister. Irrational events and moods transform fear into festivity. The entire situations are suddenly reversed. That's the old Vanah Feuchel. Purim, therefore, epitomizes the instability, uncertainty, and vulnerability which characterizes the Jews. Thus, the name Purim expresses the erratic capriciousness of events. It alerts the Jews into the sudden turns of fortune, lurking dangers, and fickleness of life, even as the Goral itself seems to operate through blind chance. Theologically, now this is his argument, so just stage number one, just appreciate this. Purim represents how insecure we are as humans and certainly as Jews in the course of history. So how does that relate to Yom Kippur? Theologically, God forgives man's sinfulness precisely because he acknowledges human vulnerability to changing fortunes, pressing circumstances, and the intrusion of the unexpected. Which means to say that on Yom Kippur, Hashem looks at us and says, Oh, poor humans, you're back here again. <laughs> and everything you said last year, which I have on, uh, on file, seems to be the same things and worse that you're saying this year. What are we going to do, humans? Have we not been through this beforehand? Have I not given you ample historical example of what happens to people who don't listen? So, so, so Rasulachika says, Hashem understands. He understands that we are not just a product of our nature, not just a product of our parenting, we're a product also of our environments. And therefore we're very feeble, we're very weak, we're very vulnerable, we're very insecure, whether it be collectively or individually. And therefore Hashem says, you know, in the merit of the fact that you are so weak and you are so insecure, that's the reason why I give you forgiveness. Because of the, 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 the life and the, the, the battering from wave to wave, from chance to chance to circumstance to circumstance that you've had to suffer. The way he says at the end, and I should have already put this in, but his last comment is just a one last <laughs> sentence, I think it's such a powerful idea. Here's what he said, I, I apologize, I didn't put into the actual uh, the notes. Here's, what he, here's the, the actual wording he has. <clears throat> the, co the compelling intrusion of the unknown and irrational is basic to man's existential condition and is precisely the weakness which qualifies him to receive God's compassionate forgiveness. So in a, th in a certain sense, Yom, Yom Purim, or Yom Purim, are the days in which we were so feeble and dependent that Hashem needed to intercede to forgive us, which isn't that exactly what's happening on an annual basis as we come before the divine throne chamber. And we come in front of Hashem, and Hashem says, you like the nation of Israel, you are the victims of so many circumstances, I understand. It's difficult. You're thrown around in the waves like you were at the times of Purim, and again, on an annual basis. What, did it, what an insight, interestingly enough, into more into Yom Kippur than even Purim. Purim is the national scale expression of what we're experiencing on, on Yom Kippur. That's what it is, Yom Kippurim. We learn about Yom Kippur from the experience of Purim. Remarkable. A very rational explanation of a Kabbalistic notion, just once again to appreciate Rav Soloveitchik's brilliance in, in, in looking at this. And finally, 
So again, four ideas so far. The fifth and last idea, and this, this, this is completely turning the tables in a, in a different direction. This is the parashanut. With this, we move into the ideas of Rav, Rabbi David Foreman. And I really advise you, if you have a chance to watch this on Aleph Beta, it's really, he does much more justice than I do. But nonetheless, just to appreciate um, the, the uniqueness of this of the expo- explanation. So here, here's what Rav Foreman points out. If you actually go back to the first, the first page for just a brief moment, let's look back, look, look back at the naming of this Megillah. Okay, so the naming of this Megillah as it's described in the Megillah. And we see that there's actually a little bit of a problem. In, on page one, this is Perak Tess, um, and we start from Apostle Kof Dalet. Here's how it goes. Fact number one, Haman wanted to eradicate us by throwing this lottery. Good. Fact number two, um, and when she came in front of the king, meaning when Esther came in front of the king, it returned it, uh, his bad thoughts on his head. Um, and it killed him and his children on the, on, the, on the tree. And by the way, just reading over here, the pronouns are vague now, just to just appreciate what the Bar Yosef was saying. The pronouns, who's Machshav Well, that could mean two things. It could mean Achashverosh and it could mean Hamon. That's again the, 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 the vagueness of the Megillah. That's fact number two. Fact number three, Purim al Therefore, the, the, these days are called Purim. Now, if we were to be logically consistent, this is actually out of order. Because there's three psukim here with three separate ideas. Idea number one, Haman wanted to destroy us and he threw a lottery. Idea number two, Esther came in front of the throne chamber and, and, uh, and um, in, um, um, changed his decree. That's idea number two. And I'm tra- 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 point number three is, therefore we call these days Purim. Well, if we, were, if we were logically consistent, what should we say? It should go, why, why is it, where should we put the Alkane pasuk? Therefore, it should belong... As the second piece of the sequence, Haman wanted to kill us with the, with the lottery. Al Cain, that's why we call this day Purim. But don't worry, Esther interceded and saved us, right? So it should have gone one, three, two uh, in terms of the sequence of these Pesukim. Which indicates, just on the logical standing here for a moment, that the reason why it's called Purim is not because of Haman, but because of yes. Esther. That's the logical flow over here. The Al Cain, the therefore, follows Esther. But Esther wasn't throwing a lottery. It was Haman. So what is the Megillah really trying to convey to us? Just, just, with, just reading the parashanot uh, of, of the Pesukim. That's, that's the question that, that, that Ralph Orman asked. Very fascinating way of starting. Let's, let's move a little further. The most, the, I think to many people, the most dramatic moments of the Megillah, um, the ones which really resonate with us are to be found in Perik Dalad in the Megillah. This is where uh, it, we're sort of out of the major action of the Megillah. We're not seeing, you know, the national scale description. We're in the, we're in the, in the interchange between Esther and Mordechai, and Mordechai's begging her to become, to take on this job, and, and, and to go in front of the king and, um, and, uh, and intercede. This is, um, th- this is what, um, what's going on. So here, here, let's take a look at that conversation. So this, uh, it's on page four. Perik Dalet Pasuk Yud Aleph to Pasuk Yud Dalet. Let's, let's take a look at well, well, how he's going to convince her. Before we even start, it's actually worthwhile thinking. If you were in Mordechai's shoes, what would you say to Esther? What would, it, what would be your winning argument to say, Esther, please, now you have to do it? Right? So, just to think for a moment, what would you say? What would be, what would be your argument? Right? If you don't do it, Esther, O Queen, if you don't go in now, this is it. There's no other way. They're going to all be died. Your brethren, your cousins, your family, your history, they're all going to be slaughtered. We need you, Esther. What does Mordechai say? 
He says like this, um, So she, she gives her her, her, uh, her reason why she can't go in in Pasuk Yud Aleph, because everybody who doesn't go in without being summoned is going to be killed. And this is what he says in Pasuk Yud Gimel. Don't think you're going to escape, go to the king's palace from all the Jews. If you keep quiet at this time, yeah, Esther, we don't need you. We don't need you. If you don't save them, it's going to come from elsewhere, Esther. Right? Who knows? Maybe this is why you came to be queen in the first place. Now think about this. This is a very, very dangerous game of reverse psychology. <coughs> right? Because you're saying, Esther is doing the opposite of what we would have thought. We would have thought to say, Esther, you are uniquely... You are uniquely indispensable to this plot. If you don't do anything, it's genocide. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, Esther, you're completely dispensable. I mean, you say, you don't do it, it's fine, we're all good. So you know what? Let, let, let's, Esther, let's say Esther's a good poker player. What did Esther say? She says, well, Monachai, you know what? I'm not actually feeling really good about this plan. But it seems like you've got an alternative option. So go for it. Right? I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to sit here. I've got all my money on you, Mordechai. I'm right behind you. Right? But go for it. It seems like you have, an, you have another way out. So go, go ahead. Do you see the danger of this kind of argument? He should have said the opposite. He should have said, Esther, there is no other way. If you don't do this, you're going to live the rest of your life in guilt. Strange, right? What is Mordechai trying to do over here? It doesn't work. And it happens to be it did work. But there seems to be, seems to be, it seems to be more that, that's going on. So in classic four, format, Devar Leah, yeah. Is it possible that maybe Mordecai had like no thought that the Jews would be saved? And that maybe Esther was You're right, you're right. So I, I imagine that Mordechai had that thought in his mind. I, I have no, no doubt. But again, just let's remember, you know, like, when appro- approaching a, the, the, you know, a, when going through a crystal nacht, right? So you may say, well, there's no doubt the Jewish people will be saved, but who's going to be killed? If, you understand? Meaning, like, how, how's he going to say, how's he going to say, maybe, maybe, maybe just like a corner and a pocket of the, he, he doesn't have the right to say, to say, what's well, fine, you know, we'll all be all right, because all might be, as a Jewish people, but not as individuals and many communities and millions of people. So they just have to be very, very careful. Not sure, not clear. But all, all I'm saying is that, is that if today this conversation were to be happening, um, we, we would do everything within our power to make sure that the person who's in the seat of power would do everything they possibly could. And we wouldn't sit back and say, I'm sure it'll be all right. Now, it could have been, again, we're living in the times of the end of Navua, so he may have had more on the table than necessary. Here we go. How do we understand this? It happens to be that Mordechai is not just using his own words. Mordechai is using the words of an earlier section in the Torah when making this argument. Here's how it goes. He's talking to a person, he's talking to a woman who's in the house of her husband, her husband who took her by force. And he's saying to you that you've got to be very careful not to be quiet. Don't be silent as a nara, as a young lady in her husband's house. Don't be silent when you're in that situation. It happens to me there is one section in the Torah which, which uses the double words, hacharesh, tacharish, of being silent. There's only one place in all of the Torah that it talks about being silent with the double words. And in that section in the Torah, it happens to be 
that it's talking about a young lady in her husband's house and there's silence being made. And it's about somebody who's making a decision which is critical to the relationship and has bad ramifications. And if somebody doesn't do something, it's going to yield bad consequences. But it's not a place we'd ever think about because it's the beginning of Parshas Matos. It's in the section of what's called Nadarim. And when it comes to vows, the, the, the Torah says the following. The Torah gives license to a human being to use their words in a very particular fashion, a legal fashion, to create a new mitzvah ultimately. If a person says, the way a netter works, is a person will say that a particular item in this world has the kedusha of, let's say, a korban. That's the way it works regularly. So a person says, this chocolate cake, chocolate cake in general, hareo like a korban, is like a sacrifice, which means I don't have access to it. So that person essentially has made a neder not to do something and is refrained from something in this world. The Torah views that that acceptance is like a mitzvah. It is as if there's a biblical prohibition on what they just said. That's what the, 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 the Torah says. It gives license to that type of thought process. Not to be, different, not to be mixed up with a shavua. A shavua is, is d- dictating action. And nadarim actually relates to a specific object. <clears throat> That's what the Torah tells us. Now, in the context of that parasha, the Torah tells us a very interesting thing. And that is, is that if in the context of a marriage, a woman makes a neder, not any neder, but a neder which is actually going to affect the, the, we'll call it, the intimate aspects of that relationship. So she says something which is going to affect their relationship. In that case, the, only specifically in that case, by the way, only, it's not in general, in what's called nadarim beinah In those nadarim, the husband has the right, he has a window of veto for 24 hours. 24 hours. And this is how the, the, the Torah frames it. Here we go. I mean, in Pasuk Yudalad, in, 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 on page 4. There's a neder of what's called inui nefesh, which she takes on, which is going to affect them because it's, it's now refraining an aspect of her life. Her husband can establish that, um, that, that neder or he can, uh, um, he can be mayferet, he can annul it. There's our words. And if he is silent, if you'll surely be silent, Isha miyom el yom, from day to day, that's the 24-hour period, ve'ekim es kol nedarea, he thereby establishes her nedarim, oy es kol esorea asher alea, all her um, prohibitions which she has accepted, he'ekim oesom ki he'echarash la biyom shamoy, he has established them because he kept quiet. Now think about this for a second. So, so there's, a certain, there's a certain license about nedarim which affect the, impact the relationship. Now, Let's think about this for a moment. It's, it's almost, just the parallels are clear, right? Here we have a woman in her husband's house, and there's a decision being made. Now, it's interesting, the decision of he has been made on her side, not his side, and that's going to impact the relationship. And if he is silent, the hecharish, if he is hacharish, yacharish, it's going to affect this decision that is being made. Let's now try to, try to dig a little deeper. In the Dharam itself, how many options does the husband have? Let's, <coughs> let's think about what, 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 what options lay in front of him. Option number one is yekimenu. To, uh, to, to confirm the netter, and therefore the netter goes into, is ratified, and is now in effect, and is considered like a mitzvah satora, and it's, it's a biblical prohibition to transgress. Option number two, yefireno, is to annul it. Any more options? So it's interesting that the Gemara, the, the Pasuk points out that there's a third option, which is silence. But here's the, here's the funny thing. The Torah is telling us that the third option is an illusory option. Because if the husband keeps quiet, what really happens... It's like it stands, which means that silence is really a decision. 
right? So the, the, the way that our form frames is, is, is the following. So there are certain things in life where the options are yes, no, and maybe. So example is, is it going to rain tomorrow? Is it going to rain this afternoon? So we look at the weather forecast, and we don't like to, you know, we don't, we don't like to make, you know, conclusive decisions. So we could say yes, no, but we could also say maybe. And we'll wait till we get there. And that's, that's fair enough. It's not going to help whether or not you should bring out the raincoats or you should change the picnic plans. But nonetheless, it's, uh, maybe is, is still a viable option. But yeah, let's do, draw an extreme example. What happens if a patient, Rahman al goes to, goes to a doctor and the doctor says that, uh, that the person, this person, Hashem Yishmore, is diagnosed with a particular type of cancer. And the doctor says the person needs to undergo chemotherapy. And so the person goes for a second opinion. And the other doctor says, look, I've looked at the charts. I don't see any problems. I don't see the problems which are the first doctor saw. But I can tell you, if you take chemotherapy, it'll kill you. Right? Because it's too dangerous at this point in time to, for, your, for, your, for, for, for your body. So at this point in time, there is no maybe option. Right? There's no, you can't say yes, or, it's either yes or no, because the decision is either yes or no. There is no in-between space. Another example um, let's skip the example for just a moment for the sake of time. But if you think about what the Torah is saying over here is, is when it comes to this neder, there is no maybe. It's not about whether we can wait it out, we can hedge, we can see how the, how the situation is going to play itself out. There is either yes or no. Hus a husband, you have to make a decision. Yes or no. Silence is not a decision. Silence is a yes. That's what the, the, the Torah is telling us. Let's think about this for a moment, what, 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 what Mordechai is saying. He's taking the same language. If you're going to be silent. Now let's, let, let's rephrase what the Torah actually said. The Torah had said if a, uh, that if a, per, a person makes a neder, what does the word isha mean in these psukim, in matois? Her husband, right? Because there is a dot. In that hay, which means not Isha as woman, but Isha, her husband. Right? It is that, that is the way of saying that is the pronoun, her husband. Let's say we remove that dot. Let's say we take out that dot. You know how it reads? Woman. The woman should annul it, or the woman should establish it. Says Mordechai to Esther, you're now the woman in the husband's house. The husband has made a terrible decision. The decision impacts not just you, but it impacts all of Kalal Yisrael. The question now is, will the woman annul it? Will the woman establish it? You are that woman now. Let's reread the Torah. It's as if the Torah is whispering in your ears. You want to be silent. Esther, remember, there is no middle option. There is no alternative. There is only one way to make a decision, and that is yes or no. Because you know what, Esther? You're the one who stands to lose out. Because if you don't make a decision, you know what's going to happen? It says Rashi, you know what happens in, in, in this particular instance? If the husband does not, uh, is silent, and uh, after 24 hours, the netter goes into place. You know what the, the Torah says at the following? Bottom of page 4, in Pasuk Tezayin. Right? And if the husband says later on, oh, you know, I should have really, I should have another, you know, honey, that, that, that we really, you know, that was not a good idea. And he carries his sin. You know what Rashi says? Is if the husband heard this, realized the impact this would have on the marriage, and didn't say anything, and later on she is, she is not able, the, the, the wife is not able to, to commit to, the, to, to what she said, who bears the sin for that? The husband, because he had the moment, he had the moment and what did he do? He kept silent. Says, 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 says Mordechai to Esther, you're going to keep quiet. You think that's a decision, you're going to play it out. You know what's going to happen? 
You're the one who suffers. You're going to be considered not just a bystander, you're complicit with Haman. In the annals of history, they're going to say, that terrible man Haman and that terrible woman Esther, because you listened and you didn't do anything. What Mordechai is doing is he's reaching back in history to be able to say what <coughs> Esther is culpable for. Let's go back over here. Now let's, let's think about this. Why is it, if we go back to the original Pesukim, as to why this holiday is called Purim, that's just, just remarkable, remarkable idea. Remember the ideas? It goes, there's Haman throws a lot. That's idea number one. Esther goes into the king. She takes action. She does not remain silent. That's why these days are called Purim. Because of what Esther does. What's the poor of Esther? It's the same parish. The word Purim isn't necessarily about the word, necessarily the idea of lottery. It's about the hafara about the annulling which Esther has done. She's walked in and the, that's, that critical window where there was still the ability to be able to annul, that's the, uh, the other verb which is remaining over here in, the, in, the, in, um, in, the, in that parasha in Matos. If you walk in, she has to be mayfair them. She has to annul them. So what the, what the Megillah is saying is in, is in innuendo, is Haman had his poor. He had his lottery. Esther had her poor. Her poor was her annulling it. Her lack of silence. Al Cain. Therefore, we call the Megillah poor. Al Shem Hapur, because of her annulling. Meaning, it is Mira Kenegir Mira. He sought to destroy them through a lottery. She annulled his words. And that's why it's called Purim. We don't celebrate what Hama did. We celebrate Esther's strong, her strength to be able to take action when she could have missed it and she could have been silent. Because in life, sometimes there are no maybes. Now just think about this, just to, just to recap and appreciate this. This isn't just intellectual pursuits, learning today. This is really our understanding of the Rebona Shalom's agenda in the world, when we, learn the, when we learn the Megillah. Just to appreciate how close we were to death, how close we were to genocide, when we go, about, go through the ideas. Again, the five ideas. Number one is the idea that it was the bed. It was that critical detail, the last moment that saved us. Number two, the idea of Achashverosh is pur, purim. Right, the fact that Ahasuerus was also complicit in this plan. Number three, the, the Ber Yosef. He says it's in Persian to indicate to us that this was the sanitized version of the story which we need to read a little deeper into to understand just how close we were to be able to reconvince not just Haman but the king himself of his, um, his, his intentions. Then finally we talked about Rosolovechik, the notion of Kippurim. We understand the depth of, of, of Yom Kippur via the, the tenuousness and the critical nature of how, da how dangerously we stood on that precipice um, on Purim as we do on an annual basis. And finally, Rav, uh, Rabbi Foreman, the idea that the Purim is not simply about Haman's actions, but about Esther's Purim, her ability to take action. Thank you so much. <coughs> Thank you.